to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Staff here, uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, we are finishing our series today, thinking about what it would look like for Jesus to walk around in Newtown. How is it that he would answer the stories that we tell ourselves about culture and about the world? And today in particular, we're going to have a little bit of a think about love. Love is the answer, so says Lennox Street. I think that's the back of the Dendy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you've never seen that, go on Lennox Street. I'm, not going to, I'm going to point in the wrong direction, so I'm not going to point. Uh, toward Church Street, uh, and you will see that up there, big and proud. And in some ways, it's a worthy banner for the area, isn't it? Love is the answer, could be the thing that this whole area is known for. I think a lot of other parts of the Sydney think about this as the place where you can gain acceptance no matter who you are. No matter where you've been, no matter where you're going. And this is actually a true thing, can I say. Uh, one of Cassie's colleagues, she works out west, uh, he lives out there. Uh, he's a bit different, he believes in mermaids, so you know, grain of salt. But um, he has a particular taste in uh, quite interesting jackets. A- and he's a Muslim man, uh, has very interesting taste in jackets. Um, and he knows that in his home community and where he lives, he couldn't wear these things. When he heard that Cass lived in Newtown, she's like, oh, he's like, oh, Newtown. There I can wear whatever I want. (laughs) I can go and take my crazy jackets with me. Um, You know, I have to confess that there's times when I'm at home and I've been, you know, doing things around the house and I'm dirty and I'm wearing ragged clothes and I've got to go get something. I'm like, I've got to go get changed. I think for a minute, I think, no, I don't. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Uh, No one will care. No one will even notice. Um, people know that this is the area where you can come regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from. Uh, there's a campaign even today to keep Newtown weird in Victoria Park. Keep the diversity. Keep the difference. This is the place where everyone gets to play. It's a big, strong, and in some ways quite beautiful narrative, isn't it? The reality that you can come as you are. In some ways, this area challenges the norms of our culture. The people that are placed outside, it says, are not outside, they're inside. The people who are called excluded are summoned in. Well, what does Jesus do with this? Jesus is known as one of the social rule breakers of his day. He redefined and defied the norms. How is it that he responds to the love of Newtown? Interestingly, I think as a culture and cultures throughout the world have looked at their love and said, my love is like Jesus' love. But the reality is that the love of Jesus is scandalous. It was in his day. And it still is in our day. The love that he has both affirms and critiques all of our loves and summons us to something even better. So I want to look at three things about the love of Jesus today. 
Three scandals. The ancient scandal, the modern scandal, and the cosmic scandal. First of all, the ancient scandal. Now, one of the things that Jesus was known most for uh, in his life was his controversial dining companions who he hung out with at the pub or whose house he'd go to dinner with. He was very well known to the fact that sometimes he was even labelled a drunkard for the people that he hung out with. He seemed to flaunt the norms and expectations of who you should be associated with in the ancient world. Case in point, Levi the tax collector. Jesus walks along in chapter 5, verse 27, and sees Levi sitting in his booth and summons him to follow. Levi gets up, leaves everything and follows him. Now, tax collectors don't mean much to us, but in the ancient world, they were numbered with murderers and thieves. It was okay to lie to a tax collector because they were always lying to you. Philo says about one tax collector that uh, he was the tax collector for Judea and he cherished spite against the population. When he came there, he was a poor man, but by his greed and dishonesty, he has amassed much wealth in various forms. Now, we know this is a common thing across all tax collectors in the ancient world because in Turkey, there's an inscription to a tax collector to an honest tax collector. Apparently that was so different that they needed to label that on his grave (laughs) because it was so strange. But tax collectors were social pariahs. They were losers. They were lost. They were unwanted. They were traitors. And they would use you to climb to the top in their quick, get-rich-quick scheme. Say that Levi is an unlikely Padawan of a rabbi is a huge understatement. Yet look what happens to Levi. Verse 29. Something happens. Levi then held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Something's changing here. Levi, a man of great wealth, we assume, because he threw a great banquet and because of his occupation, all of a sudden is using his wealth a little differently. In fact, when he met Jesus, he left the tax booth behind. Did you notice that? He left everything. He left his business behind and starts using his money to hold a banquet, a banquet in honor of Jesus. And he doesn't invite important people in town. He invites the losers, people like him. In another version of the story in Mark, it says that he invited the sinners and indeed the Pharisees say that he's eating with sinners. And so ladies of disrepute as well as men of bad occupation are all gathered in this house partying around Jesus. Levi sees in Jesus something unlike any rabbi he has known apparently. That he accepts him as he is. While he was still at his tax booth, he was summoned to come. There wasn't a change required for him to be acceptable to this rabbi. And so he invites all these people in and says, guess what, there's this rabbi and you need to meet him because he accepts you as you are. Now the Pharisees have something to say about this. In verse 30, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, their whole posse, complain to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In the ancient world, to eat with someone 
was to proclaim them your equal. It was a very powerful social statement. So much so that Ben Cyril would say in the second century, let the righteous be your dinner companions. Don't invite everyone to your house. All living beings associate with their own kind. And people should stick close to people like themselves. What does a wolf have in common with a lamb? No more has a sinner with the devout. You were to draw clear lines between who you were and who other people were, who was acceptable and who was not. Because to to go up to the table with them was to summon them into friendship with yourself and declare them to be one with you and to honor them. And so Jesus in his action is flaunting the table fellowship customs of his time. But he's doing so purposefully. It's a sign of intent. It's, in, it's, it's a sign of what the God of the universe wants. He wants the unlovely, the outcast, the sinners, the messed up used car salesman like Levi. He's come for them. And they get to come to God as they are. No matter who they are. That is a scandalous picture of love in the ancient world. And, and maybe in some ways it affirms a little bit of the culture of Newtown, doesn't it? That there is no norm and no box. There is no category. There is no person that the living God does not want at his table. That is scandalous love. I think to move to the second scandal, the modern scandal, I think that maybe we we echo that part of what Jesus has done here, but there's another part that maybe to our culture and our age and our area is a little bit less palatable. And that is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus does not invite people to the table as they are and just say who they are is fine. In fact, he goes to their table because he is a doctor and they are sick. There is something wrong in them that needs to be fixed. Now, that is a more complicated thought in our day, isn't it? Often what happens in this area when someone new comes into town is what happens to what is broken in them is redefined. Sure, out there in the place where you grew up, you were labeled as unacceptable, but here, let, let us wipe away that un and we'll just put the, keep the acceptable up there. There's a social redefinition that happens in this area where people who are called like they don't belong somewhere else are instantly declared fine and belonging. That's the way that acceptance actually socially functions in this area. But Jesus doesn't do that, actually. Jesus is willing and sees the fact that Levi's life is not okay, that his clamoring after wealth at the expense of the poor and the rich 
that his dishonesty, that his love of money above a love of God is sign of a desperate spiritual sickness that the doctor, the Lord Jesus, must fix. The story our culture tells that is the bigger picture of this is that there, the problem is out there but not in here. It's in the culture, in social conditioning, but not in the self. And I think there's a bigger story as to why that's true and a bigger story as to why we find Jesus' words perhaps a little bit difficult. It's the story about faith. Now, you may have been told that over the last 300 years that faith has decreased across this world. But I actually don't think it has. I think even in the West, faith has not decreased. The location of faith has changed. But faith keeps going. You see, in the, before the last 300 years, the divine power was out there, up in the heavens, beyond us, high and powerful and mighty. But in our day, the divine power is within We don't believe in the great divine architect. We believe in the remarkable human spirit of which there is a divine spark in all of us. And if that is actually true, then what love looks like is to allow each divine spark to come out regardless of what it is. Because otherwise, you will cause harm. That's the only definition of love that really is acceptable in that story. And that makes sense to me. It makes complete sense to me. It's the story of Disney that a dream is a wish that your heart makes. And everyone has a divine wish and it must find its way out. It's, it's in the midst of that story that Jesus worked that actually, no, 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 the problem isn't out there, Levi. The problem is in here. Is less palatable. Jesus does not believe in the divine goodness inherent in the human self. He sees its sickness and claims to be the doctor, summoning to a better way. And I actually think that makes his love not less remarkable, but more. Because Jesus doesn't sit down at the table with people who society says are bad, but actually aren't in the end. He sits down to the table with people who he knows are in the wrong, who he knows has cheated society, we knows have wronged God and loves them anyway. Despite what has happened in them, despite what has happened through them, that is the scandalous message of the gospel that Jesus has, that despite who we are, God loves us. Despite where we have been, God loves us. So Jesus' love, it's as scandalous back then as it is now. But I think the deeper reason behind both those things is the cosmic scandal evident in the gospel. Do you know what? I think the reality is that this, the, the, the view of unlimited acceptance, it just, it just doesn't work in practice. Mainly because it, it can't fix broken relationships. Because what happens in the world is that we do wrong and are wronged by others. And simply accepting people who have done wrong to us or against us doesn't fix the wrong. It can create a surface harmony. But there's a deeper relational reality that we long for. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, I used to be a youth pastor in one of the northern suburbs of Sydney. 
And one day I was running, it was a Sunday, we ran youth on a Sunday, and I was running very late because I'm very geographically challenged. I'd taken a turn to Canberra. We can tell that story later. Um, But I was very stressed and very late, and I was running up to youth, and church had started and youth had started, and in the courtyard out the front of our church was a bunch of young guys. They had a lot of cigarettes and had a lot of stubbies, just to paint the picture very clearly for you. And on a sunny Sunday afternoon in the suburbs... That is not a particularly normal sight. <laughs> Around here, it is, just to clarify. So I was freaking out a little bit <laughs> because the service was happening uh, and there were lots of kids around and I had to run youth group and I'm thinking, I have to work out what is happening here. So I went up to these guys and I said, uh, hi guys, uh, what's happening? <laughs> what's brought you to this area today? They said, oh, well, uh, we've, we've come to see the priest. Uh, I was like, well, uh, sorry, we're an Anglican church. We don't really have priests. We don't really do that. What, why, do you, why do you need to see a priest? They're like, we need, to, we need to come to confession. Oh, we, we kind of don't do that, but uh, I can talk to you. Why, why do you want to come to confession today? One of them looks up to me and says, We're going to court tomorrow. And we've come to get everything sorted out. They go on chatting, drinking, smoking. And one of them, after a little bit, looks up at me. And you know how eyes speak more than words do? That was one of those moments. And he's full of fear, these eyes, full of fear. And he looks up at me and says, Do you forgive me for everything I've done? It was a very powerful moment. Uh, A young man who knew in his bones that he could not repair what he had done. That he could not fix the wrongs. The damage was irreparable. All that was left was the possibility, maybe, of forgiveness. You see, what what we long for more than acceptance is atonement. The bringing back together of things. Here's what atonement is. Oxford Dictionary. The action of making amends for a wrong or injury. See the origin? 16th century. Especially between God and many. We'll talk about that. Comes from at one The bringing back together of two things. The dismissal of, of the wrong, the dismissal of the broken thing, the, the dealing with that so that two can come back together, that is what atonement is. And that is the deeper reality that the acceptance in this area is actually longing for. That only unlimited acceptance is just a surface scratching of the deeper longing for reconciliation. And the reality of the cosmic scandal of the cosmic significance behind Jesus' table fellowship is that the God of highest heaven has come to make atonement not for His wrongs, but for ours. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, that we just read out before, it talks of the love of God, that love comes from God. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The scandal, the cosmic scandal that the table fellowship Jesus points towards that the God of highest heaven has come to pay for the wrong and to repair the things that we cannot fix. Now, atonement may be strange language to you, uh, atoning sacrifice especially strange. But in the Jewish worldview, this was a well-known thing. There was a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, Yom Fideh Kippur for atonement. And on the day of atonement, two goats would be taken. And one goat would be killed and its blood taken and splattered over the house of God, the temple, especially the place where God dwelled. And the other goat would have the priest's hand set on it. And the priest would confess the sin of the people on it. And then it would get kicked out of the city and it would go and would take the sin, take the wrong, take the punishment that they both deserve off into the wilderness. Through the shedding of blood, And the sending of the goat, the repairs to the relationship between God and man were made. And what John says is that the Lord Jesus, all of our wrongs have been placed on his head. And his blood shed actually makes us able to be friends with God again. Jesus wins the atonement we never could win. And this is what love is, John says. Self-sacrifice that bears the cost of the wrong to make the relationship flourish again. If you want to know what the love of God in heaven is, that is it. This is why Jesus can sit down with tax collectors and say you get to come as you are, even though you're sick. Because your sickness I'm going to take with me onto the cross. You know, that was the problem in the end with table fellowship. You didn't sit down with a, with a sinner because they would pollute and contaminate you. Their works are unclean, one writer says. All their ways are a pollution. But the reality is that Jesus came into the world to be contaminated. To bear the cost of Levi's fallen heart to become the medicine for the sickness of the soul by giving his life on the cross. And John says that this is the love that we are to have for one another. Not unlimited acceptance, but costly, self-sacrificial love. It's only when we love as Jesus has loved us that in verse 12, his love is made complete in us. It's kind of like this love is so scandalous. It is so out of control that it has not done its work in you until you begin to echo that same love in who you are to the people around you. This is the love that doesn't sit down with just people we love, but people who hate us. It sits down not with those we are at peace with, but with our enemies. Not people who think the same as us, but different to us who back up to difficult relationships and bear the cost of the pain because God has borne our cost. 
to the Lord Jesus, that is the love that makes the world work because that is the love that God has. That is the love that is in this universe. But as we conclude, the question we ask is, well, why is it so hard? I think the reality is our pride. The reason why we won't bear the cost of other people, we won't sit down with people who differ from us, or we find it hard to sit down at the table with those who have wronged us, is that we feel we are in the right, and they are in the wrong. We are in and they are out, and we are proud in ourselves. You know, the only thing that can really melt that pride is coming to the doctor and acknowledging like Levi did that actually what is inside me would exclude me from the table. God could not sit down with me at his table. But the Lord Jesus always has been at the Father's table and he came down and wandered out of the city like the scapegoat that we might have his place at the table. It's to the extent that your heart knows that in the end it is sicker than you thought, but more loved than you ever dared dreamed. It's to the extent that your heart knows that Jesus has brought you to the table that you can walk up to a table of someone who's hurt you and be like, you know what, I know that you hurt me, but I hurt my God much more than he forgave me. We can sit across from people who are different views to us and know that we are loved recklessly. And so we can love recklessly. We are recklessly accepted. And so we can recklessly accept and atone and bear the cost of others. Jesus' love is scandalous in every age. And he summons us tonight, today, it's not tonight, (laughs) to admit that and to accept his atoning sacrifice that it might change us. Let's pray. Father, we come admitting that we don't deserve to be at your table. We don't deserve table fellowship with you. You are honorable in a way we will never be. And yet Jesus came, sitting at the table of sinners like us, saying that you allow us to come as we are before the problems are fixed, still while the wrongs hang in the air because our sin has been spoken over your son and his blood has been shed and we can be one again with you and through that love we can actually deeply love one another so break our pride lower us we pray that we might experience your good love And through its power, live a new life through Jesus Christ. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.